Hi, everyone, and welcome back. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Joseph Whitdeering, who is a board-certified psychiatrist who specializes in the accurate identification of psychiatric adverse drug reactions. Previously, Dr. Whitdeering served as a medical officer within the Division of Psychiatry at the Food and Drug Administration, where he analyzed emergent safety issues for psychiatric drugs and proposed strategies to mitigate risks, such as writing safety sections and psychiatric drug labels. Dr. Whitdeering has worked in three different pharmaceutical companies, two for psychiatric medications and one for oncology, in the clinical research and drug safety positions. Dr. Whitdeering also sees outpatients in his private practice that focuses issues pertaining to psychiatric adverse reactions. Before that, he completed a fellowship in psychiatric drug development at Janssen Research and Development, whilst also holding a post as assistant professor at Drexel College of Medicine. He completed psychiatric residency at Baylor College of Medicine and graduated from the University of Queensland's Medical School in Australia. I think you're going to find this interview very informative, and please stay tuned for the post show. Okay, welcome, Dr. Yosef Whitdeering. I am so glad to have you on. I've been wanting to have you on for a while, and I've watched a lot of your videos on YouTube, and you can see that you truly care about the suffering people have gone through, and I just want to say how much I appreciate them and how helpful they are for people suffering, especially when their doctors, families, and friends don't believe them. Yeah, well, yeah, thank, thank, you, for ha- thank you for having me. It's a delight to be on, and, um, and that, that's that's kind of all that I want to be doing right now is um, trying to put out as much information as possible about these conditions. You know, really the hope being that it does help people have uh, easier conversations with their doctors. You know, it helps their families uh, figure out what's going on with, um, with the sufferers sooner. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you enjoy it and I hope it's making an impact. Oh, good, good. So you're seeing a lot of suffering with your patients and and truly the harm and medical errors that other doctors have done to the patients that come to you. How do you feel about the medical profession? Yeah, I mean, it's um, certainly doing an absolutely awful job when it comes to informed consent and even recognizing risks. I mean, they're letting down uh, I mean, they're letting down the public, essentially. Um, and so I don't feel great about the medical profession. Um, and, you know, I've kind of seen it from all angles. I've seen it as a trainee, as an attending physician, as a pharmaceutical physician, and as an FDA regulator. I've kind of seen all, all aspects of it, and uh, all of it could be done better. And it's really to the, you know, detriment of patients. Right. So do you worry about other doctors attacking you or is it already happening? And the reason I'm asking that is because I know somebody else, one of the other doctors who went public long time ago, he was being attacked by other psychiatrists. And then they kind of kept a private list of anybody who believed as they believed in. Are you worried about that at all or is it happening? It hasn't happened yet, but I suspect it will happen eventually. I mean, you know, it. it I guess... I'm probably going to be looked at as a contrarian because I, I say a lot of things that, um, you know, then they're, they're not the, the usual things that you're supposed to say. I mean, you really meant to say, you know, mental illness and, you know, depression, these are such serious medical conditions and, you know, let's not stigmatize, you know, these suffering people. Let's not talk about the drugs. Let's not pill shame them. So I'm sure eventually I'm going to um, have some critics that are going to, take what I'm saying in that way. Um, 
but uh, I'm, I'd just say I'm, I'm kind of ready. I'm kind of ready for it. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I spent so, so, so much of my career kind of being afraid to sort of speak out about this because I didn't want to. And then eventually, you know, I've kind of tipped over into the other side. So I'm, I'm actually trying to be as loud as possible about this. I, I, I was so ginger, you know, I was so, um, you know, cautious about talking to journalists before, um, and now I kind of say everything as directly as possible. So I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen eventually, but it's, yeah. I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. I know even when I was starting my support group, you know, online and, you know, in Australia, they were asking me, well, how are you going to do it? Because this is how we do it over here. Somebody tapering shouldn't be meeting anybody who's, you know, already off and so on and so forth. And, and then in the UK, they're like, well, you have children. They're going to attack you. Um, they'll do anything to make you stop. And I'm like, you know what? We, we have to do it. We just have to, you know, go for it, you know? And, and now look at how many, there's so many groups and everything out there. Um, but uh, anyway, so what got you into wanting to de-prescribe? What was the turning point that made you want to do the de-prescribing? Yeah, as for a turning point, I think rather than it being like a turning point, maybe like a turning curve, it, it was a slow buildup of many things over time. I mean, I, I came to psychiatry um, from a love of actually self-help books. You know, I, I used to love reading people like Tony Robbins. I used to love books about psychology and philosophy. And that was really what I was into growing up. I loved it since I was a teenager and I just... And I, it kind of carried me through um, my teenage years into medical school. And then, um, you know, I, I was kind of, you know, I went to a pretty um, rigorous prep school. And, um, you know, my I, I joke that my mom is Chinese, but it's kind of like not a joke. I mean, you have expectations that you're going to be like a doctor or an mm -hmm. engineer or a lawyer. So I ended up in medical school and I said, you know, how am I going to marry my love for um, psychology, therapy, self-help, all of these things into, you know, something that, you know, I'm here in medicine now. And so psychiatry was the answer. And I said, you know, that's really interesting. Um, you know, let's learn about serious mental illness. And then as I went through my training, I just saw that, uh, you know, essentially that there was none of those things that, you know, that I really that I really loved. I mean, there was some of it and don't get me wrong. I did some training on, on therapy when I was in residency, but the overwhelming focus on the way we treated mental illness was just, um, uh, biological using drugs. So right from the beginning, I would say there was something about that, that, um, that struck me, uh, as wrong, you know, the overuse of medications. And I'm not going to say that there's no uses for medications there obviously are there's people that come out of the womb highly anxious with ocd or people that come out with psychotic and bipolar disorders and they need medications so i want to get that straight but that is not what you're seeing um well that was not what i was seeing you know my experience on, on the ground level i was seeing these things getting uh you know easily just kind of handed out as if there were no problems at all with them you know for minor problems I saw a mental health system that was not set up to really help people the way that we would want our loved ones cared for. You know, if, if someone was you know moving town and they were, you know, very upset and lonely and they needed some support and they were depressed, uh, you know, rather than, you know, having a well-established kind of therapeutic network where they could go and meet with someone and talk with them and get that kind of help. Those systems have, have not been set up over here in the U S and, um, and so it's meds, meds, meds. 
Right. And so immediately I'm like, there's something wrong with that. And, um, and then I started hearing about the harms, you know, I think, I think I started looking, I, I mean, a lot of people don't pick up anatomy of an epidemic or, you know, books by David Healy and, and, and such, they kind of write them off. But I think I was already primed just because I felt like something was just off about the whole thing. And then the more I looked into it, the more I realized that um, all of that stuff that they were talking about was, was, was mostly spot on. I was really hesitant about um, Robert Whitaker's um, thesis at the beginning that, you know, maybe some of these drugs are making people chronically mentally ill. And, you know, the more I stay in the space and the more I treat people who are, you know, on benzodiazepines long-term, a lot of people on the antidepressants who I treat, I do see cases where, you know, they've definitely have been made worse by the drug. It almost, it, it, it looks like it's becoming more and more true. Um, and so I guess that's how I became interested in deprescribing. First, I thought that, you know, the drugs were massively overprescribed. And then I just became more and more aware of the risks of the medications. And then the, the kind of the passion for the subject has grown as I've, um, you know, done it, done it clinically. Right. And thank God, thank goodness that we have you who paid attention and saw the need, um, you know, that there was a little bit more harm. In fact, the first time I talked to, you know, Robert Whitaker, I said to him, I believe that this pill is causing a lot of the mental illness. And I sent him the Ashton Manual and the Accidental Addict. I said, I want to send you these. And I you know I was just so upset by everything. So, I mean, it it, it is... Um, I'm glad we have people like him, like you, that are stepping outside the box and really looking at this. Um, so here's a question I want to ask you. It is so hard to hear the suffering of people trying to withdraw from benzodiazepines. So what are you doing to protect yourself? Like, how do you decompress? Because I know the effect it's had on me when I hear it sometimes, or you get that person just wrote you a letter, and it all started with this minor stress, and there they are on 10 drugs. It's It's crazy. So what do you do to protect yourself? Because, you know, we, we need you to stay strong and healthy. Sure. Yeah. So um, there's there's definitely a limit to how many people I can I can see. Um, uh, this is probably no surprise to you. You know, I start my week and my week looks nice and I look at the calendar and by the end of Monday, it's filled, you know, with just emergency appointments because that's the um, that's kind of the, the nature of the patients I, tr I treat. You know, there's you know, they go into waves and then they're, you know, really, really sick. And so um, I have to limit the amount of people I see and make a lot of spaces in my calendars for emergencies because I, mm -hmm. I feel like I have a panel of people who are constantly in an emergency. Um, <laughs> again, I'm sure that's not a surprise to you, but that's, no. that, that's what it looks like. Um, the other thing, and this has become a lot easier over time, it's, the, it's probably the mentality. We are so used... To in medicine to, to having like drugs or treatments that we can use to alleviate suffering. And when you work with this population, none of that stuff consistently works. And, you know, there's some cases where you have to use medications very judiciously to help the symptoms of people going through this. But a lot of the times it is just reassuring them, talking to them about their options you know, weighing them. And for me, I had to become a lot more comfortable uh, over time with, uh, you know, not being able to reach for a medication and, and give them that and being okay with that. And actually seeing over time that that's really what a lot of people kind of need and felt reassured by was just someone helping them think through the process and their options. You know, 
Do I go to a hospital? Okay, what does that look like? Do I experiment with a new symptomatic treatment for my severe protracted withdrawal? Okay, what does that look like? And just kind of walking through those steps in a way um, is therapeutic for them, especially when it's with someone that kind of understands their predicament. And that's and so that that's helped me a lot. And you know, just just having that mindset um, mm-hmm. going into it and not being like, I need to fix it right now. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'll i tell you, there were plenty of times where I, in my head, uh, I'd say to my husband or my mother was here, like, I feel like I have to go to an emergency room. I'm, I have to go, but I'm too sick to go. There were nights that I went to bed with my clothes on because I thought for sure an ambulance was coming. I'm sick. And the sickest you're ever going to be. And yet, you know, you can't go to a hospital. I have to ride this out. Now, you remember, this is like 25 years ago that I'm going through it. So I knew I said to them, if I go to a hospital, they're not going to know what's wrong. And I remember one time my son's begging my husband to take me to the hospital. I'm like, no, they will only give me more drugs. I have to I have to ride it out to get better. So to have a doctor who understood it that you can talk to before you get somebody to take you to hospital is worth everything, that calming, that constant reassurance that we all need. Oh, and for the family as well. I, you know, I have a client right now who's very, very sick um, with protracted uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal injury, and she gets it and the family gets it, you know, that, that she can't go to the hospital. Oh, sorry, her immediate family does, but the whole extended network, they don't understand and they see mm-hmm. how taxing it is. And they keep on sending me... Um, uh, brochures for uh, detox facilities mm-hmm. um, and you know and saying you know right and right now there's essentially the treatment for this um, you know very sick lady is just to essentially be at home with her family and a caretaker and yeah. someone just kind of watches her while she recovers and um, and 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 it's been very challenging um, for uh, for the parents of, of this of this girl you know yeah. to, to have oh, all the family the members oh, send her here, send her there. You know, she needs to go and do this. And so, uh, yeah. It, I had somebody <laughs> and I did a podcast with her. I believe she went to, I, th- I think, three rehabs. I mean, they spent the money, three rehabs, send her out, back on, she'd go. And finally, the last rehab she went to, one of the orderlies whispered in her ear, you're sick from the benzodiazepines. Like finally tells her, he's like, get out of here and go recover. And then they kind of found me and called me and you know, here she is living a good life now, but it was, it was crazy. You know, the, the three rehabs they paid for, you know, so they don't, that, that is crazy. And, and each of those rehabs can be like 50 grand a pop. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they can be, I mean, you know, so expensive and, and people cannot believe, you know, when they see the suffering of a loved one that is so severe, they cannot believe that the medical system has nothing to offer them. Um, yeah. And they should go, surely, surely she's so sick. If you send her to the hospital, they'll be able to help. And right. it's this dark realization that, that, that dawns on people. And it is a step to healing. You know, when you realize I'm kind of on my own, you know, I am in a gap in the healthcare system where there are no well-established treatments for this. And, you know, going to the hospital is probably going to make me worse. And how scary is that? But right. that, that's where a lot of people end up. And, and that's kind of, for many people, that's the best place that they need to be in because then they, their mindset changes and then they can, and they can move through it in a safer way. Yeah, I know. I know. It's very scary. So I'm going to ask you this question, which maybe some people out there are wondering, 
because I know you have a waiting list to see you. So of the psychiatrists that I know who are helping to do the de-prescribing, none of them take insurance. So is this because insurance doesn't cover it? Because I had a doctor who was going through benzo withdrawal once, and he said that when you go through benzo withdrawal, and if you go to, like, let's say, an addiction doctor is what he said, that insurance will only cover a fast, like, 30-day taper. I don't know if that's, you know, a rapid taper. But I'm assuming people can get reimbursed through their insurance companies if they're working with any of these doctors. And why is it that they don't take it? Is it because I know the insurance companies pay for me to be drugged for 10 years, and then I never went into a medical establishment again for probably 10 more years after I you know, knew that it was the benzo making me sick. The the problem with insurance is that it um it adds a lot of administrative work, and so you mm-hmm. really need the 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 staff infrastructure in order to make it um uh, in order for for you to not be bogged down essentially you know calling companies and being on hold for you know twenty mm-hmm. minutes here twenty minutes there, um and so you know once you start bringing on people to do that then it's um uh, you need to see volume and um. I think the reimbursement probably for a, gosh, maybe like a 25 minute visit might be something around like $135 or something like that. Right. Um, and, um, um, and I mean, that may, may, that may seem like a lot, but it's, it's actually not a lot uh, for, for most psychiatrists. And so most psychiatrists, I think it's like 50 to 60% in the U S at least are doing private um, because one, they want less of the administrative oversight, uh, you know, the administrative burden. Um, and so it's just, it, it's just not worth it for many people to do it in that way, which is, which is awful. Um, and, but understandable, you know, it's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the, you know, there's only, there's me and my wife in our practice and, you know, unfortunately there's a, there's a wait list now and, and we're we're really um we're really busy but the hope is that um we can turn this deprescribing you know one that you could come to the youtube channel at least and you could get the pieces that you need to go and do this um either on your own or with or with a physician that we you know we don't hold anything back anything that i would that i discuss on the youtube channel i i it's the same stuff i'm doing with my patients so it's right. There's, there's, there's nothing kind of hidden or, you know, behind the veil there. Right. I and like so the that. Hope is that. Yeah, I like it because yeah. people can get a feel for you. Okay, they can bring their mm-hmm. spouse, their parent on to say, look, it, here's what he's saying about this. So I like that you put it all out there. It, it is nice. It's it's free care for them in a way. I mean, the thing is, and the thing that I want to figure out is like, um, you know, lots of people can take complicated things and then make make them into an operation. And it's like, how do you turn what I do and what my wife does into something that could be rolled out on a larger scale with people that maybe don't have the same level of, you know, uh, obsession or training? So, I mean, that's the next thing. It's how how does how does this become like a program where we can bring on, you know, maybe you know, psychiatric nurse practitioners, you know, or, you know, new, new doctors and set it up in a way where it, where it is, um, uh, where it is a good product and a good service where someone could come and let's say they, 
had a hard time coming off benzos, I think that would be the easiest place to start. And you could put together a program of, you know, if this, then that, if this, then that, and really kind of lay it out for someone to follow. That To, to me, that's the really interesting. That's probably the next um, thing I need to start thinking about because mm-hmm. um, it's just, yeah, obviously it's, it's, it's impossible for me and my wife to, uh, to help all of the people that, that they need this help and it's just growing. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's crazy how many people are out there. It's, it's much larger than I ever thought when I originally came into this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I think 25 years ago, there were 24 people in the support group that I started, which then I'm like, oh, you know, maybe we'll get to 100 someday. I mean, and then it just exploded. Then came more groups, more groups. I mean, it, it's just grown and it's, it's a huge problem internationally. I mean, you know, I see sometimes when people are ordering the Ashton Manual, it's coming from, I can't even think of a country that hasn't ordered there, you know, and that's just the American version. I mean, on the, um, on the benzo.org.uk site, they can get it in different languages. So you wonder how many people are ordering it. Um, and speaking of mm-hmm. that, uh, let's just met when people are tapering, they can dry cut, they can switch to a liquid taper, they can do compounding, they can do water titration, there are tapering strips, and now some are using a jeweler scale. Is there one form of tapering you like more than another, or do you just see how a patient's doing and you adjust accordingly? I mean, you can prescribe, you know, in different ways. But in fact, when water tapering became, um, you know, the new thing, Professor Ashton actually liked it. So how do you feel about all the different ways of tapering that are out there today? Okay, yeah. So my views change. Uh, on this and um, but but for your standard patient that comes into me I, I tell them to do cut and hold you know five to ten percent um, reductions and then you you know your first your first cut um, you know you want to give it four weeks I think and then you and then you shorten it so um, you know if let's say they had symptoms for seven days or something like that after their first cut okay well maybe maybe you only need uh, two week you know, two weeks between dose, uh, uh, two weeks between drops. Cause I like people to be symptom free for a week before I do another, well, mm-hmm. not, sorry, not symptom free. I like them to be back to their baseline for a week before another one, uh, for, before another drop. So, um, so I like cut and hold first just because it's simpler. Um, but there's, there's, there's two, there's, there's two dimensions when it comes to a taper, at least how I think about it at, at the moment. One is the, um, the duration between drops and um, you know, that's anywhere between two to four weeks. And at least the way I think about it is I will, I will shorten or lengthen it so that the person is back to baseline for seven days, you know, more or less. And then the next um, domain, uh, the next um, um, part of it that's important is the, um, the size of the reduction. And so size of reduction, how I like to, to assess that is, does the person's level of functioning uh, stay the same? Because I don't want to do a reduction where for those seven days, the person says I had to take like three days off work. I couldn't leave the house, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, I can't cook, you know, that, that reduction was too big. Um, so that needs to, I will cut it back, you know, we'll, so we'll go. So if that happens, we go back to the previous dose and we do a smaller cut and then we reassess. And so I, I like to adjust the size of the drop to to anywhere where the level of functioning remains uh, the same. I mean, the symptoms can be worse. You know, you can be suffering, and a lot of it is suffering, 
but the, I think the level of functioning needs to be more or less the same. And so when I start thinking about someone doing like a liquid micro taper, mm-hmm. it's usually that next step. So we've tried cut and hold. And, you know, when we've been doing cuts, you know, each of the small cuts, just it's still bad. So 10% cut, you know, level of functioning ruined, you know, 5% cut, level of functioning, very bad. 2% cut, level of functioning, still very bad. That's when I'm starting to say, okay, this person needs a micro taper. We need to do, you know, 5% over the course of a month. And then each day they're going down, you know, whatever it is, like zero point, you know, like it, like a, you know, some, some tiny fraction, a 30th of that 5% drop. And, um, and that's when I would go to a, to a liquid, uh, micro taper, um, or yeah, yeah, or or you can do it, you know, a micro taper with a, a jewelry scale and um, you know a nail file. Um, and I guess the other thing is when I do cut and hold, it also depends on what's easier for the person. I mean, some some people like to go to a compounding pharmacy, and if they have access, I think that's great and it's really easy. But other people just use the pill with a nail file, and they'll just you know take off the percentage of the pill. Uh, each, each day and do it that way. And that's fine as well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when I first was in touch with people over in the UK, some of them were doing just the nail file. Okay. So I'm going to do one stroke, you know, to, and then I'll do two strokes. I mean, this is what you have to do to get off. So in the Ashton manual, it suggests switching over to Valium because it's longer acting. And Dr. Reg Pert, who ran Victims of Tranquilizer, and he was a victim himself of them in the UK, um, who Professor Ashton turned to for a lot of her advice, also believed in switching to Valium versus Clonopin. He wrote a paper on it. And he, yet we see people switch right back to their original benzo if they didn't feel well when they switch over to the Valium. They tend to have a better control of it when they go back to their original drug. You know, others were successful in switching. You know, some are, what is your opinion on switching? Because I've been pretty public, you know, even though I loved Heather, I loved everything she did. I mean, because we got so big over the years, you could see the ones who did wonderful going over and those that it just Valium wasn't good for them. So, I mean, I just believe it's kind of a, you know, got to go with what's best for the person. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm happy to be very public about this as well. I never recommend people cross over to Valium as a first line. Um, I think it's, um, in general, it's safer to dance with the devil that you know. I've made okay. people really, really sick crossing them over to Valium, like totally messed up their taper, you know, given, put them into severe waves um, and then just being like very confused and stuck in a place where they're half transitioned over to Valium and half on their original drug and they're stuck and they're like afraid. And mm-hmm. so that, that only had to happen to me a couple of times before realizing that, hey, not everyone needs to go over to Valium. I'm, I'm much more... I, I'd, I'd much prefer someone be on the original drug. So, you know, for instance, if someone comes to me on there on Xanax XR, you know, one milligram, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing I'll do is just put them on the instant release version and just spread it out in, in maybe three doses or four doses throughout the day. And then I'll taper them from that. So um, that's, that's essentially kind of hopefully doing the same thing that a Valium crossover would do, you know, a more even spread of the medication throughout the day. Um, And so I, I I try and do that. Um, In some instances, someone will come to me and we, maybe we've already tried that and they're still having a lot of um, 
I guess, interdose withdrawal. You know, they're on the original drug. We spread it out. They're still having a lot of interdose withdrawal. In that person, I may try and um, uh, start introducing some Valium to see if it helps. Um, but that would be like this second line thing that I'm doing really to specifically treat interdose withdrawal. Um, my wife, she, she likes to use Valium in the evening. Um, she, she's had a lot of success doing that, maybe just swapping out an evening dose. And so she might have someone on a few doses of clonopin during the day and then Valium overnight, especially if they're having sleep problems. Mm-hmm. And she's had some success doing that. But it, it's really like individualized. Um, right. But overall, I'm just going to say, yeah, I think be careful uh, doing that Valium crossover. That's That can be really, I, I think you can make people worse. And sometimes they cross over and maybe they don't get this massive wave, but they become incredibly lethargic um, and, uh, you know, slow cognitively. And that's really tricky as well. Right. You see, I learned from, you know, from actually more with Dr. Pert, he would say, yep, they're going to get very lethargic, let them hold for a good month till they start to stabilize. And I used to think, thank God, you know, I controlled myself better with Ativan. It was, I always used to say, it was the devil I knew. I knew how to control it. And I know if I was, if somebody gave me the choice of switching over to Valium, I think I would have just stayed with Ativan. I've seen, like I said, so many go over to the Valium, they hate it, and they'll go jump right back. They don't even wean back. They jump right back to, let's say, if it was Ativan. And now they're like, okay, now I got it. I got to go slow. I got to keep it level in my body. So I'm glad you said it because there are some people think, oh, I have to switch over to Valium. So it is. It's very individualized. It might work for one, but as with anything with this whole process, what works for one isn't going to work for the other. So I have been pretty public about that. Um, now, here's a question that I'm going to ask. And as much as I'm learning that I shouldn't even have to ask this question, um, I know that it, and it has to be asked, you know, if a person is drinking alcohol while tapering, because I'm shocked to learn how many, when you talk to them, all of a sudden, like, oh, well, I, I drink every night. I'm like, no, you're not supposed to be drinking. And sometimes they're not even telling you for a while. And then you discover that. So, and I know once they're off, Easy for me to say because I don't drink alcohol, but Dr. Pert was adamant that there was no alcohol for three years after you come off of benzo. So what are your thoughts? And do you even have to ask somebody now, like, are you drinking alcohol? Because, and I tell them if they are, you can't just start tapering that. You're going to wean off your alcohol first. So, um, you know, I won't give anybody mm-hmm. tapering advice. I'll say to them, we'll, we'll talk about it, but I am shocked how many are drinking. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, ideally everyone should not be drinking at all, um, or using any caffeine or, you know, and this happens as well, using any recreational drugs, uh, Mm -hmm. during this. Um, and that said, um, you know, I also have patients who are drinking and who are getting, who are tapering. I mean, it's not excessive, it's not excessive drinking, you know, they'll, you know, maybe we'll have a glass or two a week and for them at least it's okay. You know, it's not excessive and mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be making things worse, but any kind of heavy drinking I think is, is not good. Um, if I, if I get someone who has tried to taper and they're drinking heavily um, and um, you know, they're doing it because they're in withdrawal, usually I get them to stop drinking and I actually increase their benzodiazepine. Um, and then 
because a lot of times the drinking is triggered by being, um, you know, they can't handle the level of the, of the withdrawal, you know, it, right. it's, it's going too fast for them and they're, and they're doing it. And, and for me, I'd rather them be on more benzo and not have this very unstable kind of alcohol going in and out of their body. Um, and so we go up a little bit, we get them stabilized and then we come back down, you know, mm -hmm. completely dry in a very gradual way. Oh, good. Yeah, that's that's smart. See, because, you know, you can prescribe for them. So the ones on the groups and they don't have a doctor, they just got their regular dose of, of benzo and and then they're drinking. So that's why I'm like, no, you got to get off the alcohol first. But again, easy for me to say. And I also have never had coffee or tea. So I'll say to them, if you're going to drink a lot of coffee, can you just have one in the morning? You know, and I don't, you know, believe in doing all the artificial sugars, I think that can really affect people. I had somebody, we had become very close and he was, he'll tell you he was 110% recovered. And all of a sudden he's, he's a mess. And, and I'm like, well, what have you done? And he goes, well, I'm drinking this Propel water and I, I don't know what Propel water is. And then he called me back and he said, oh, my daughter just looked and it had sucralose in it. And just from having the sucralose, he was out of his mind. So I'm like, okay, just stop drinking it, flush yourself out. So different things can affect people, you know, that put them back it's in hell. Yeah, yeah, and, and this so this is a message for the people out there with protracted withdrawal, and uh, it, it's even after you've recovered or you 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 feel like you're ninety percent recovered. Um, all what I've noticed is that it just means that um, you're mostly able to regulate, you know, the injury. I mean, this the injury is still there, but your the capacity for your brain to regulate it has has gotten to a level where there's there's not a lot of suffering but still uh it's very easy to knock that system out of balance um and and that's why you hear stories about people who you know they'll drink a cup of coffee or go out for a big night drinking they're like oh yes i'm you know i'm recovered i can go back to my normal life and then they'll trigger a massive wave because as soon as you th throw in some of these external things that upset the system i mean that little bit of like regulation that your brain has been able to put together to suppress your symptoms, it's no longer able to handle it when, once those things come in. And it's, it is really heartbreaking. Um, I spoke to someone on my channel not long ago, Brian Belts, and he was a young guy with a benzo injury. And uh, he was talking about how excited he was when he thought he had recovered and he'd used some recreational drugs and essentially threw him into a wave which has been in, ongoing. And I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it really is heartbreaking, especially for those younger people who want to go and, you know, be, you know, be in their twenties and, you know, do things and, you know, yeah. do what their friends are doing. Um, but I mean, the advice is after you've recovered from a protracted withdrawal injury, yeah, at least a year, if you could do three years, that's yeah. even better. I mean, it's just keep things in the same place just so you can really solidify um, the, the, the healing. Right. I, I agree. So yeah. again, we're not saying you can't ever, ever do it again, but he was, uh, you know, Reg was adamant for three years. He felt the brain really had to heal. I mean, you know, I had a young guy, I was actually become close with his mom and he called me up and he said, you know, I'm turning 26. I just want to go out and have a couple of beers. I'll have organic beers. And I'm like, you know, I, I can't tell you to do it. I mean, I don't drink easy for me to say. And he did. He went out and he had just two organic beers. That's it. And set him back. 
I mean, he's fully recovered mm-hmm. now, but yeah, it's, it's, you'll have some that will say, I'll never drink again. And even Heather in her manual says that you could have a, you know, a little drink, but I know there was one of the organizations in Australia years ago when the manual first came out, they're like, oh no, no, we will not be recommending her manual to anyone because she recommended you could have a little alcohol and there was something else that they didn't like one of the meds she said you could take. And, you know, that's just being a little hardcore, but you know, people have choices in life and, to me, it's just easier to not do those things when you've worked so hard to get your health back. Um, and then speaking of health, okay, so when you're working with somebody, do you have them change anything with their diets? Like, do you have them use any supplementation or depending on where they are in their health, do you recommend them doing some exercise or what are your thoughts about using some additional therapies like acupuncture, saunas, breathing techniques or anything to assist? Or do you just not even get into that with them? Yeah, so so I some things I get into, some things I don't, and and the reason I'm not getting into some things isn't because oh my god I think they're terrible and they're a waste of money. It's really out of just not knowing. You know, there's there's only so much I can know from my right. background, and so so here 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 are my thoughts on diet. Um, diet seems to work really well for some people. The amount of people who I know closely who have gone on a keto diet diet or who have done an elimination diet. And who three months later come back and just say, "Oh my God, I feel so much better." is is growing steadily. Um, and so I think everyone, if you haven't uh, tried to at least cut out gluten and dairy or go keto, that's something to experiment with. That really seems to make an impact on people. And I don't think it has anything really to do with like withdrawal, like the pathology underlying withdrawal. It just seems to make some people feel better. I mean. I, I personally, I did an elimination diet and my back pain became much less. I, I just think there's something maybe just in general about simplifying your diet and getting rid of things that are you know associated with inflammation that may, may just help globally with health. So I always tell people that I, I think an elimination diet is a good idea if they have the bandwidth for it, if they're healthy enough to do it. Um, as for... Um, other supplementation again it's just not something that i'm really aware of i mean some people take magnesium i think that has like a direct effect on the brain it seems to be calming for some people for others it can be really and then for some it can be very hard to stop later on and and people just do these things and i kind of carefully just oversee it um acupuncture has definitely been helpful for some people so has physical therapy especially if they're protracted and they have protracted withdrawal and they have a lot of the muscle tightness and things like that um but um i um probably yeah probably the main thing i would oh oh, oh, and then coming to exercise i think exercise is is really great but again for the people with the with the protracted withdrawal injuries exercise tends to be another thing that can upset the balance you know especially when people are coming out of it and they're they're they, they're getting some improvements and they're having some days that are that are okay. If they go on like a long walk or walk up a couple flights of stairs, they can trigger like a mini wave that goes on for a few days. So again, it's this terrible thing where, okay, you've regulated your, you know, your brain to a point where symptoms are reducing within this extremely narrow range. And then even something as seemingly healthy as exercise, it just throws it off and, and you feel unwell. So with the protracted withdrawal group, exercise is something you just want to pace yourself into. You want to do a little bit. Hey, how do I feel? 
then a little bit more and you and you you need to kind of find your limit but in general yes exercise is good you have to be careful if you're in that yeah, traffic group I, I agree i i even even when tapering i learned myself the hard way i was doing smoothies and healthy soups and i'm exercising and I, and this is while i'm tapering and I got myself so sick. I didn't exercise for years. So I always tell people it, everything should be gentle. Everything we do for the body, gentle, slow, work your way up slowly, you know, everything. So uh, yeah, I agree with you there. And as for diet, there are some out there. They just, they're lucky if what they can get in in a day. So it, is it mandatory you eat healthy? No, but I don't ever want to be sick again. And not that I don't cheat, but I try 90% of the time to eat well. My son might disagree with me there if I want to make a treat. But um, I just don't think people have to think so rigidly. But absolutely removing the gluten and the dairy. I usually recommend like the whole 30 because there's so many recipes online. Keto, you know, I see them doing it and they feel great. You know, whether they want to do that. There are choices out there and we all have choices to make. So I, I agree with you with all of that. Oh, so, but, couple, yeah. couple final comments about diet. I'll just say I have seen people get worse on keto as well. Um, and then also I, I want it to be really clear. Some I've seen people completely heal with a regular normal diet mm -hmm. as well. Right. So, I mean, even these a are just junk like food little diet. bonuses. Yeah. Even a junk food diet, you know, even a junk food diet is getting is better than eating nothing um, as well. So, I, I would just say it's it's the diet. I know it's really hard. Um, it can cost a lot of money. It is not essential. You will still heal without mm -hmm. changing your diet. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. But, you know, if I can get somebody who's just starting to taper, like even my friend, you know, I did a podcast with her and I'm a firm believer that if we can get them before they start the taper, if we can get them to start eating healthy first, you know, establishing the good habits, you know, a little bit of exercise, you know, get the support, get your support around you, get ready. I think they have, you know, an easier time. Like, you know, you don't just get up and run a marathon. So you'd prepare for it. I mean, so do you ever get somebody who's before they start so they can get everything lined up, like line up your people, line up, you know, what you want to do, even to learn a breathing technique before you start. Have you ever had somebody or they're always coming to you, they're already in crisis. I was just thinking that, yeah, they're, they're, they're in crisis by the time they find me. Okay. If, if I had someone who wasn't in crisis, who just came to me on a bunch of meds, it was just like, hey, I stumbled upon, you know, anatomy or, or something. And, and I realized that actually the, the risks of these drugs are way more than I expected. And I want to come off. I would suggest something like that. I think that's great to kind of get those healthy habits locked down before we start shocking the system. Mm -hmm. They're just, it's just not how people tend to find me. Right, right. They they get you after they're already in a disaster. So one thing that you must yeah. see a lot is people must come to you diagnosed with so many different things. And then as you're helping them get off, you know, and you see them getting healthier and all these issues are just going away. Have you seen anything yet so far with things that they were diagnosed with and it's it's all gone? I mean, the main thing is, um, it's the main thing would be like bipolar disorder. I mean, mm -hmm. this, this is, this is mainly an issue for the antidepressant folks. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, or, or the people who have been like, um, you know, experimenting with cocaine or methamphetamine and such. Um, but they frequently come with bipolar diagnoses. This happens to a lot of people with PTSD as well. Um, um, any, any kind of type of psychiatric symptoms where the, where people can become 
um, you know, very emotional, highly irritable. So think depression, like anxiety and PTSD, and maybe even the personality disorders, uh, often they end up on medications and then they kind of, you know, eventually, um, something flips and they, you know, get diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. So that, um, that's probably the most common one. I mean, the other, and then the other one with the benzo injury folks is that a lot of the times they get diagnosed with those hysteria type conditions where they mm-hmm. say they have like a functional neurological disorder, um, where it's like essentially, you know, the, the symptoms are, you know, psychological manifestations of, of their distress or the, it's called illness anxiety disorder where they believe, yes, you know, you know, maybe some of these things are true, but the way they're describing them is so exaggerated, you know, and it's because of their mental illness. So that's, that's what happens to a lot of people when they interact with the uh, healthcare providers who, you know, cannot recognize the pattern of symptoms that they're presenting with. And so the only way they can understand it is through one of these kind of waste, waste paper basket diagnostic bins. Um, and so once they meet with me, I just go, no, you know, you have a, you have, you, you have a brain injury, you know, you have a protracted withdrawal injury mm-hmm. and this is what it is. And, and, and such. So yeah, those, those are the, too, I see a lot of. Okay. I, I have a couple of crazy things I want to ask you. So oh, yeah. over the years, we have people, we call them the non-sweaters. So these are people that have lost the ability to sweat because of a benzo and some couldn't sweat from the beginning. So, you know, the non-sweaters. So when you see, when we find that out, you know, we, you know again, this is 25 years of learning. When we could get them to start sweating, in fact, even one of my moderators, she lived in Florida, she could not sweat. So, and seven years later, she's still sick. And, and then we find out she doesn't sweat. So as we get them to sweat, they start to feel better. Have you noticed that in your practice at all? So I'm starting to ask people now, do you sweat? And it's amazing how many of them, like, no, hardly ever, like ever. So um, I see a lot of sweating dysfunction, you know, people, um, well, actually, the truth is, I, I haven't. I don't ask about it as as much as I should, but it is something that I've read a lot online um, mm-hmm. about um, dysautonomia uh, symptoms. And so when I say dysautonomia, I'm talking about a very varied heart rate, you know, one that you could be sitting quietly and then all of a sudden you're at 150 beats a minute. And this is not a panic attack. I mean, this is just you feel mm-hmm. your heart just randomly racing uh, in the absence of any kind of stressor. Uh, sometimes the blood pressure goes all over the place. And then the other symptom of dysautonomia is the, um, is the sweating, you know, and, and that people can stop sweating or, or people can start sweating excessively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that seemed this, and this is so weird because, okay, so it happens in the folks with the antidepressant injuries. It can happen in the folks with the benzo injuries. And it also happens to people with long COVID and also with COVID vaccine injuries. Mm. And that is just the most bizarre thing in the world to me that we can have so many different types of conditions that seem to cause this, um, this um, injury to the autonomic nervous system, which is the, it's the nervous system that controls the parts of our body that, that we're not conscious of, you know, heart, sweat glands, you know, blood, blood vessel dilation. And so there's, I mean, that's just something that just astounds me, you know, how many different things can mess with this system. But it's something that I need to ask um, a lot more about um, uh, because, yeah, it it really fits with the the whole idea that these 
benzo injuries, I mean, it's really global neurological damage affecting mm-hmm. multiple parts. Um, right. So yeah. even talking to an, a healthcare professional, you know, he said, look, if they can't sweat, you know, let them start slowly, just putting their feet in some water with Epsom salt, you know, to get them to start sweating. But I know with my moderator there years ago, that started to, she went, her son would take her to the beach, you know, in the sun, and she would sit with her feet in the water, and she would bring a spray bottle. She was trying to get her body to sweat. That was the start, seven years later, of her starting to finally get rid of those, you know, those protracted symptoms, you know, that she had. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think about like sauna therapy? Because that's, that's a way to get people to sweat. Has that been helpful to anyone? So actually, I've gone back to a few people that don't sweat, because as I've been researching this lately, and some are actually going to go do the sauna. And, you know, even in my own case, so I I would sweat, you know, I was sweating profusely. I'd go to bed with my hair straight, I'd wake up with it curly. But in my uh, trying to recover, my cousin got us a free week at a female place to go, a fitness place. I don't know that my own cousin doesn't sweat. So she goes with me for the week. We're going into the sauna. We're trying, no, we do the steam. So we're trying to do that Swedish thing where you do the cold shower, go into the steam, come back out, cold shower, go in, you do it three times. In her bringing me for the week, she starts sweating. I'm like, you you never sweat? She goes, never. That brought her body to sweat. And she was like, I can't even believe she, she didn't even know she felt sick from not sweating. So yes, we do see that. Now here's the other one I'm gonna ask you. So over the years, and I'm I'm really just starting to, you know, I put these questions down if I'm talking to somebody now, if they have a gallbladder. And so in, again, talking to the health the natural health professionals, I said, you know, what these people that don't have a gallbladder that you know, what should they be doing? And they said that they should be taking the digestive enzyme with ox bile. So if you don't have a gallbladder, it should be digestive enzyme with ox bile. Has, has this come up at all? Like, are we noticing that? Because even though everybody says it's an organ we don't need, we're starting to realize it had a purpose. Is it making the liver work hotter? And, you know, some people wound up in the benzo groups because they had the gallbladder out and then they, they had anxiety and they got put on benzo. So, that's kind of something I'm having them. I, I know I had somebody had to do a survey in one of the groups, you know, did they have a gallbladder? Um, I have to say, you you have just put this on my radar. It, it's going to be a pattern I start looking for. Um, but I have, I don't have anything to really report on uh, in, in okay. terms of whether that's my patient population is, you know, has a high amount of people missing gallbladders or not. Right. It was just like something that you start to notice, wait a minute, this one doesn't have a gallbladder. And wait a minute, that one, you know, so does that help assist the body? So he, this health practitioner, two of them I've asked said, yes, digestive enzyme with ox bile. It has to have ox bile in it. So again, we're not telling anybody to run out and do it. If you don't have a gallbladder, it's just something I I think we should all be looking at too. Um, so mm-hmm. in um, in the uh, the GAPS diet, you know, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride's book, you know, she talks about the gut, the gut, the gut. So what are your thoughts about working on the gut in general or even slowly assisting the liver? Not I don't believe in detoxing because, again, anything with us has to be done so slow. I know myself at five years off, I was still sick. I'm running a group. People are getting better before me. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm doing all these right things. Why aren't I getting better? When I have some functional medicine tests done, and not that I believe everybody has to run out and do that because we don't have to, 
Um, my gut was a mess. I really couldn't tell. My gut was a mess. And genetically, my liver, you know, I wasn't born with everything you have. So everything I did was done slowly to heal the gut again. Everything for the liver, I was very nervous to do that, was done like at a snail's pace. And that's what finally brought me. So for me, and again, that's me, time wasn't going to heal me. I needed a little intervention. So have you... I think it's, I don't know. I mean, we know these drugs are amongst the drugs that harm the gut and not that it's going to harm everybody because we look at some that just get off without a problem. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, you this think? is getting maybe a little bit, a little, yeah, it's a little bit outside of really, really where I specialize. I mean, the extent to which I think right. about gut health is really um, the elimination diet. And it's just the idea that, um, over time, you know, pe people don't realize that they may be ingesting foods which um, are causing bacterial overgrowth or maybe inflammatory in some way. And that, you know, there's so much connectedness between the nervous system, the enteric nervous system and the brain that, you know, maybe for, for someone who already has a disordered brain, they have a protracted withdrawal injury. If you can simplify what they're eating and kind of get rid of things that are causing inflammation or bacterial overgrowth, you may be able to reduce the overall number of, I guess, uh, impulses coming from the gut and going into the brain. And uh, I mean, this is just speculative. And I just assume that maybe if there's just a lot of activity out there, it's just creates more disorder in the nervous system and in the brain. And maybe the symptoms are more intense in some way. Again, this is just me speculating it, but that's how I would, right. that's how I think about, right. um, you know, healing the gut. Right. So there are a lot of people, when we talk about the brain, a lot of people, our eyes are affected. I know mine were, um, the thought process is off. A lot of them are talking about black brain. You know, they feel like their brain is dying. When somebody's tapering, what would you do if, if you had somebody like that? You know, their vision is affected or they're, you know, seeing things differently. I mean, it's a process to heal. I, I didn't have that. My eyes were affected, um, but I didn't feel like my brain was dying or that I had black brain. This black brain thing is really interesting because I had someone reach out to me from Belgium recently explaining essentially that, um, just that she's, I feel like a piece of my brain is dying. I've also heard it feels like, like parts of my brain are frozen and I really didn't think much of it, but, but, um, I mean, is this some kind, is this a, is this a, uh, as, uh, something that people are experiencing. I mean, what, what's your like? What what does black brain mean to you, Geraldine? What like what what have you heard from people? So it, you know, there were like three young girls now, and I, I know the one from Belgium that you're talking about. And so again, we have yeah. three young girls right now, all trying to explain it the same way. And when one heard that the other one said black brain, yes, that's what it is. And and you know, all are tapering. That's the thing. All are tapering. So it's the first time I heard that, and. And I'm not sure if they're all having the visual. I know one is having severe visual um, issues, you know, can't be near any light. I mean, I even had to wear sunglasses in the house, but this goes beyond that. So to me, it's just where, you know, Heather Ashton used to say that we all have a weak point, you know, so is that their weak point? Is that their brain that they, they're all very logical. They can think they can talk, but they feel like their brain is, is dying inside there. It went black. So hard for me to say when I didn't experience it, but yeah, I mean, there's three young girls right now experiencing it. And I'm sure there are others. They all say the same thing is something with the eyes, the migraines. I, I don't know. You know, you try to figure everything out, but I'm not sure. 
I was just wondering if you had any answers or it's just, again, yeah. it's a symptom well, I, and they got to get got through someone, it. I got someone on my panel, not not this um, this girl from Belgium, but like another person who who changed, um, who was doing a, a, a swap from one benzo into another one. She already had a protracted withdrawal injury and she described the same thing. You know, it was just like, while she was swapping, it was like a part of my brain died. And then she said, and I just felt like I was becoming psychotic. And like all of the right. symptoms that happen to people during this, I'm, I'm, I kind of, I'm hearing it and I go, man, I don't even understand like what, what that must be like, you know, but then you notice these similarities. And then this girl from Belgium says, I've got, you know, part of my brain has died. And I'm just like, wait, is this just like a strange new symptom? That's, you know, clearly very hard to describe, but I mean, I'm interested in it. I mean, if, if anyone listening to this has a similar experience that fits with black brain or, or something like that, could you just email it over to me at, jwd at withduringpsychiatry.com because i'd like to hear more about it um but the other thing is um the vision oh yeah so the vision stuff that i'm the most familiar with is really just light sensitivity i mean it's um people um i've I've heard a few things and a lot of this was is very similar to what is in my interview with kathy donald it's the malpractice one on, on the page and she would mm-hmm. talk about a few things. One was just uh, severe light sensitivity to the point where she would need to put a piece of tape over the green illuminating light on her microwave in the middle of the night because it would be so irritating to her. Um, driving was hard. It was distracting. You know, it just felt like everything that was kind of coming into her through her eyes and her ears was just overwhelming she also experienced an inability to to gauge um, depth depth well. Uh, she, you know, could not for the life of her park her car in a space. You know, would often fall, kind of reaching out to 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 grab things or, you know, to to move around things. So, lots of visual things can happen during this protracted withdrawal period. And I guess the other folks, um, which is really sad, is 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 the people with PSSD. And they develop something, and this is the antidepressant people, not the benzo people. They develop something called visual snow, where it seems like their their image, their their vision just becomes incredibly grainy. Mm-hmm. I haven't had any benzo people tell me about that, but um, oh but yeah, there's, no, yeah, there's no, a lot yeah. of yeah, there's a lot of visual things that that can happen with these drugs. Right. Um, all right, look, yeah. let's get into. The, and I had sent you an article, um, the the one from 1961, published in the Journal of American Medicine about benzos in a woman's menstrual cycle. So the first year that we testified at the Massachusetts State House, just about every woman there had either a hysterectomy, multiple DNCs, or lost her menstrual cycle until she was off, and it would take a long time to get it back. I saw my periods change while on Ativan. I went from perfect periods to bleeding three weeks out of the month. And when I had the hysterectomy, I asked, you know, when I woke up, what was wrong with my uterus? And he said it was in perfect condition. So we see in the groups now that as women are tapering, they're getting their periods and normalizing. When I talk to someone who's off, I always ask that woman about her menstrual cycle and just about all had issues. So are you seeing that? I mean, I always do ask a woman that because, you know, some are, are... very upset because they've aged out, they can't have children, or the ones that had hysterectomy, some of them still mourn it. I mean, it's, that's, you know, another tragedy, you know, happening to the women. I mean, this is just another example of you really teaching me 
me something because you, you're, you're boots on the ground, you're interacting with a lot of people and you're noticing these patterns. And um, this is, it's not a part of the body that I, that I've been asking a lot of questions about. Um, and I, I will need to do so. Um, I mean, the one part I can, I can relate to is, is the several conversations I've had with a lot of women in their, in their twenties and thirties who are really worried about whether they're ever going to have children, you know, cause they're so disabled, mm-hmm. um, from this, from this condition. Um, and so, but that's, it, it's not so much of a point from a point of, uh, you know, my, phys, you know, my physiology has changed and I'm not having periods. It's more from, a, am you know, I'm so, debilitated from this how could i ever care for a child um but yeah i'm I'm gonna have to start asking more about that okay so as we talk about you know because i always at the hearings i always mention this because it's so upsetting to me but in holly hodman's documentary as prescribed you see some of the doctors testifying against us and you testified in favor of Isabel, which i so appreciated that particular year was done via Zoom. So none of the doctors that usually testify against us showed up. Um, I wish they had because it would have been the first year they would have had doctors testifying in favor of the bill. And it's sad that we even have to turn to legislation to have a bill about informed consent, short-term reason, short-term prescription, you know, symptom-guided tapers. And the main thing is we want to protect long-term users. So Personally, in the United States, we probably have more scientific scientific information on benzos than any other country, yet no one is listening. So what is your feeling about legislation? And, you know, what are your thoughts about Holly's documentary? Because you did get to see that, you know, where you saw them talking against us. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, first, I think they're wrong. I mean, I've... I've, you know, I, I came from a place of handing out antidepressants like a lot, you know, when, when I was in internship and kind of like figuring it out and second year and, and then kind of really, really changed. And having really thought about the risks of these medications, I would totally be for, be, you know, for legislation that would make people sign a piece of paper, you know, whether it was, if it was for benzodiazepine, you know, it says, you understand that this could make your anxiety worse in the long term. Yes. You understand that you could have withdrawal symptoms that could last, you know, for years later. Yes. You understand that you could have neurological damage by taking this medication, you know, that may take years to go away. Yes. You know, with the, with the, even, you know, I know this would be easier for the benzos to get past, but even with the antidepressants, God, you know, there's so, they have so much potential to ruin people's lives and their, you know, their, uh, the sex lives and the PSSD and the protracted withdrawal that happens there, even for the antidepressants, I think someone should sign because the, they they should sign a piece of paper that they acknowledge those risks. Because I really believe that, like, only five percent of the people who are currently taking these medications would continue to take them if they really knew uh, how bad some of these risks were. So, am I for legislation for this? Yes, because I mean the doctors are not doing a good job telling patients about this. And so when, when, when they can't do it, you know, yeah, please government step in and, you know, put this risk mitigation in place. Right. I mean, Holly's film showed exactly. I mean, these were doctors practicing for like 30, 40 years and they're saying we've never seen it. You know, it was, and to be there and to hear them saying it when they're in a room filled with people who have been injured. And do you know that they've never heard anybody else speak? 
except for me, because I go up first, then they were coming behind me and they would leave. One did stay one year and they leave. They don't hear what anybody has to say, even mothers, a mother's there whose son killed himself. And then another year they were asked to stay. They were specifically asked to stay and they still walked out of the room. They've never heard our stories, which is sad. And, you know, so when Holly brought that to light, just what we're up against here, that was pretty sad. How did you, how did you view her documentary? It was great. I loved her documentary. Um, and I think it was good to kind of see that part of it in particular. Um, and uh, it's just, I mean, it, it's a snapshot of what I see every single day. You know, all of those right. patients are kind of, kind of like my patients, you know, um, and, 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 and yeah, so I, I, I loved it. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's bringing the message out there. It's showing what we're up against. And there was so much that goes on when you're there. It, it was amazing. And I hope you'll testify again. Um, Garrett, the bill was filed again, right? We're just waiting for a date. We're waiting for a hearing date, which could happen from now till when? Until next February. Okay, so we'll we'll be definitely letting you know. Um, I'll be back. Yeah. I can tell you that now. <laughs> good. Yeah. good. <laughs> and, and they're yeah. now going to be doing them totally via Zoom, right, Garrett? They, we have the we have the option to be there or do it via Zoom, which for everybody, it's 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 nice to be able to do it via Zoom. And it's sad that mm-hmm. we the opioids became such a nationwide program problem. And I believe the benzos are an even bigger problem. Like, how do we even bring attention to it? There's so many books, documentaries, YouTube videos, scientific articles, websites, symposiums, all warning about these drugs. And yet the professionals aren't even listening or taking us seriously because with the opioids, you know, you hate to say it, they're dying. But with the benzos, it's like we're crazy. You know, I walked in and I was a normal, healthy, working full time mom. And because I had a baby with an infection that I don't know, I had a uterine infection after childbirth that then came the benzo and all that. Like, what do we do? I mean, you can't. So I'm just saying this is a huge nationwide problem. And, you know, I I know even when I got to speak at the governor's meeting, I was asked to come back and speak. And um, when they heard my story of my niece who, you know, went into going through a divorce, drinking, goes in to come off alcohol, comes out on Xanax, which is worse, gets in a car accident, she's given an opioid, and she dies at 30 years old, leaving three little girls behind. And so it's like, this is bigger, she should never have walked out of that rehab on a benzo, number one. But, you know, it's just a lack of understanding. There's so much out there now. And I don't even know how we fix it after all these years. But we could do this for hours. There's so many questions. But before we end, and I had so many things that I wanted to talk to you about, you know, akathisia and DPDR. I don't know if we can just spend a minute on that. Akathisia, which is so hard mm-hmm. for people in DPDR, it's hard enough when they're tapering, but when they're off. Have you found anything that can help with that or is time the healer? You know, again, in speaking to a couple of natural health professionals, they had some ideas. And it's funny when they mentioned this one thing. It's what Dr. Perth said he was looking into, which is acetylcholine, which then you could take um, phosphatidylcholine, I believe it is. But that's something we have to research. So I feel like we have to be looking at this. But what do we do for those with the DPDR and the akathisia? Um, so DPDR, um, that one, I don't know. Yeah, I don't anything, either. Anything really helps for the DPDR. Yeah. Um that's that's to me that's mainly supportive and it's just kind of um helping them uh 
recognize the impact that that's having on their lives and in their relationships and maybe explaining what that state of being is like to their care team um, because it can be really disorienting for you know like a spouse to, to mm-hmm. be married to someone with dpdr and who's so disconnected and just helping them recognize what that is and what it's like um, for the akathisia i mean i don't have that you know much better answers i think that uh, i mean time is the thing that heals that but right I mean, and I've kind of talked openly about this. I mean, I've had some people, I've had one guy in particular so sick that he ended up on fentanyl for a period of time because his akathisia was so bad and he stopped eating and we had to do that for a few months. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously a, a really heavy drug and one that causes dependence and could make people, you know, stop breathing essentially if they're also on benzodiazepines or even on its own. So a really scary drug to use, um, but sometimes you're just essentially forced um but other things that people can try uh very judiciously and always at you know lower than the starting recommended dose especially if they have a neurological injury clonidine seems to have helped some people metazapine at very low doses might help relieve symptoms a little bit so does propranolol sometimes but these things that they're all so hit and miss you know for everyone that it like helped it's it's also cause the setback for some, right. for some people. And um, we do know that time does help. It's just, a, you know, it's, it's a hard yeah. thing to tell people, yep, time is going to help you. I mean, I have so yeah. many, we could stay on for like another hour. Um, and I know um, your time. Well, I, I want to say, yeah. that's okay. I, I want to say one more thing is yeah. I, th- these are the people, these are the people that find me the most. If I, if I think about the people that, you know, beat their way to, to my door, it's the people who have severe akathisia, because nothing is like more frightening than that. And we go through this stage and we get to the point where I'm like, well, we can try, you know, some opiates or we can try some, you know, uh, morphine or we can try some fentanyl if it's really getting that bad. And it's almost like getting to that point of saying that to them is the point where they go, oh, there's nothing really that can help me. You know, it's just time. And so I walk with people through this like panic of like, how do I even cope with this? And then when they get faced with the fact that, yes, you know, maybe you could do it, but it's with, you know, God, fentanyl, like who wants to be on fentanyl long term? I mean, it's just, you know, they just go, I'm, I'm, I'm going to find a way through this without it. You know? And so that's, that that's a very common thing that happens in my practice when, when I work with these, with these folks, you know, I, I show them the options and they go, I will do everything I can to not take that fentanyl and just find a way to, to survive while this heals. Right. Right. Yeah. So before we end, is there a special message of hope that you would like to say to those around the world that are suffering? Because I'm sure they all wish that they had you as their own personal physician. Um, I think the, 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 the message, the message of hope would be that the information to do this work safely is already out there. You know, it's in places like the Ashton manual or it's in places like, uh, inner compass, um, and the withdrawal project, um, and all of the really good nonprofit organizations that are getting this out there. So the information is there that some of it's on my YouTube channel as well. And the main thing is time. I mean, for all like for most of these things we, we, especially the protracted problems is we're just talking about uh, neurologic injuries that recover over time so 
at the low the lowest common denominator for this thing is you know once once you've once you're doing a safe taper that is once you've figured that part out the the the, the main thing you need to do is just make it through the day right. and and that's and that makes the whole thing just simple just just do everything you can to make it through one day after another and uh people recover substantially to the point where they have meaningful lives right right well, I can't thank yeah. you enough for doing this podcast and for your understanding and your believing those of us who have been harmed and for helping them. And I can only hope that more physicians will follow in yours and your wife's footsteps. Well, thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you. Great. And then I hopefully, hopefully we'll do this again because I know I'm going to have more questions at another point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to come back. Boy, Garrett, that was, I really loved that interview with him. It, and we could have gone on, I would say, another hour. I actually had more questions, but I know we had a time restraint, yeah. mainly because of you. You yeah. you had a commitment I didn't know about that you had to go. And, and we also had booked 90 minutes and, you know, the setup time and whatnot. Right. What did you think? And we're now recording this like 36 hours after the interview. Right. It's the first time we've ever done that. Ever done that. And that's only because you had a commitment that night. We both had commitment. You had to go to the state house the next day. I was busy the whole next day. So here we are Thursday, June 29th, and we're just getting it done. But hopefully it's going to get out today because we have some things that we want to say that it's date involved and whatnot. But what an amazing doctor. Mm -hmm. I wish every doctor, every psychiatrist was like him and his wife. And, you know, it reminds me when I was speaking at the State House one time and I brought three sheets with me of reasons people got put on psychiatric medication. And if you had a doctor like him, you wouldn't have been drugged or you would have the doc. He would have noticed you're sick from one drug because the majority of the reasons people put on was a reaction to an antibiotic, another drug, or they had the I think some of the reasons the birth control pill. A lot of girls start to get anxious on the pill. Some of them, they, they lost too much weight. They weren't losing enough weight. Um, I'm trying to think. One had the flu too long, so she got put on a bento. So there was a survey done years ago. So I had three pages of reason. In fact, if people want to listen to that episode of Medical Prescribers Listen to Me, I read off all the reasons people got put on drugs. And if you have psychiatrists like, like Yosef and his wife, it wouldn't happen. They'd recognize what happened. The the medical harm that's to come down the road. You know, even something like myself, after childbirth, something's wrong. I feel like I weigh a thousand pounds. I had an infection. Nobody's picking up. It's all in my head. I got drugged for ten years. I mean, he's good. He's good. Yeah, he was great and it you know, it'll take doctors like him leading the charge to kind of make a difference. I know you know, we try to do it with legislation and everything, but the truth is it kind of has to come from within in the end. Yeah. And so it'll be people, it'll be a doctor like him or him that, that changes everything. Right. I like that um, on his, the YouTube channel, he tries to put anything and everything out there for people to learn. So, yeah, he is getting booked. There's a waiting list to see him and his wife and, you know, that you can go on, look at his YouTubes. They're really good. He He's just interviewing people. I mean, we do everything audio-wise, but you can see and, you know, watch them talking, and it gives you hope. So he's giving you answers. He's putting it all out there. Yeah. I mean, which is amazing. I, I love that. I think that's that. important to me, too, because anytime 
you you see people that have a certain expertise i'm always wondering how they gatekeep their information Mm -hmm. and uh he doesn't at all you know he puts everything out there for people because you you know I think you can hear it in the interview that he's empathetic to what these people are going through and wants to help. Right. He's also still willing to learn from all the people that have been made sick. I like that. Yeah. So I thought that was one of the most interesting things about um, about the interview. When he wasn't sure about something, he said that's something I, I need to learn about. It. And it's like it's refreshing to hear from a doctor just because, you know, with like some of the health issues that I've had recently, mm-hmm. it's like you go and you talk to a doctor and they tell you what something is and then you tell them, well, I'm, that's not how I'm feeling. And they want to tell you tell you how you feel and then you kind of don't know where to go from there where, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like he's willing to learn. Yeah, I, I really like that. I mean, I, I hope everybody you know, goes to his the, the channel and, and watch the videos. He's put them all out there. I, not that I've seen them all, but I, I try to catch them from time to time. And they're good. I mean, some of them, when I go back and I'm listening to them, I'm like, oh, yep, that was me. That was me. So mm-hmm. for somebody going through it, it's like, all right, this one's able to go back to work. They're not perfect. But, you know, there's a lot of encouragement in them. And isn't that what we're all trying to do is encourage and bring this problem to light? Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, I'm. I and and again, I hope we can have him back because I still, when I looked at the list that night when we were doing it the other night, I still had so many things that I wanted to get involved in because he does all the psychiatric drugs. We're mainly benzodiazepines, yeah. but there were so many things and um, you know people with more of the protracted stuff going on, and that would be another whole show to talk about protracted issues. Yeah, so. I think at some point we'll get to a follow up with him and. Um... I won't be surprised if he has answers for some of the things right. that he's you know, learning. he wasn't able to, to answer tonight. But And I loved, night. yeah, when we talked about the black brain, again, I said there were three of the, of the young women suffering with it. Actually, there was a fourth because then she's writing to me later on. They're all, don't know how to word it, but when, you, when one says black brain, they're like, yeah, that's how they understand it. And he gives his email address to contact him because he wants to understand that more. That to me is a is a, a doctor really learning and caring, truly caring. So yeah, he was awesome. He was great, yeah. Yeah. So um I, I wanna get into a couple of other things here. So mm-hmm. while we're on, because again today is the twenty ninth and for anybody who hasn't seen as prescribed yet, it is still playing with the Love Wins Film Festival until tomorrow, June thirtieth. Um but it is also going to be at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. You can find the link for ticket purchases on the asprescribedfilm.com site or on the uh, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival site. As Prescribed is going to stream from July 1st through the whole month until 200 tickets are sold. So As Prescribed receives no money for it. So, And they're glad that the festival does because the cost to run a large festival is immense. So, um, and and you know what? I want to read something just quickly because my cousin, who has been trying to watch it, um, she uh, sent me a text today. She finally saw it. So I'm going to read what she wrote because she, she, I talked to her yesterday when she was three quarters of the way full. And she goes, don't tell me what happens to Scotty and, oh, my gosh, your friend Paula and blah, blah, blah. So she goes, don't tell me anything. I have to finish watching it. So. Today, I get a text from her. She goes, I was afraid Scott was going to kill himself. I cried when the two brothers testified, but I'm so proud of you and Garrett for all that you have both done to make um, known the terrible 
life-changing results these drugs have done to so many people and to testify as you did so many times to help make necessary changes to prevent the terrible side effects that so many have experienced. You are an amazing um, champion for the cause. It is an outstanding documentary. The doctor at the end is a criminal as far as I can see. Do no harm as they say. He could care less. So that was from my, my cousin Kathy. Um, so it was nice to get that because she's been trying to watch it and each time she's like, I couldn't get on, I couldn't do this. So, you know, and she knows some people that are on it. And, and, and actually one person, you know, he's in his 80s at this point and I said to her, at this point, I would leave him alone. You know, he's functioning. He's 80. It's just too much. So, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, I'm trying to get, you know, some of my other cousins are trying to watch it. Um, slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. Um, so, anyway, that's that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, on that kind of note, you know, people that I've worked with in the state house on, uh, you know, on the documentary, that knew the documentary was going on, worked on the bill, it took seeing the documentary yeah. to understand what the bill was really all about. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think if, unless you have somebody in your life that's gone through it, it, it's hard to kind of understand it. And you kind of put it, uh, what people always kind of bring up to me is the opioid epi epidemic. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the only way that they understand it. Like, oh, it's like opioids. Only worse. Only worse. So, you know, the documentary is, is important in, uh, in helping people understand what's actually going on. And so... I think too, we're hoping to show as prescribed at the state house either this month, like in July, um, yeah. or once we come back into session in the fall, because August is kind of a dead month as far as, you know, actual reps right. and senators being in the yeah. building. Because that's something Holly's wanted. And yeah, so that's great. Yeah. And so I, I think it, the documentary being shown in there and being shown directly to legislators and policymakers. I mean, we'll how would it difference. be done? Like in a room where they all go see it or it'd be via Zoom? How yeah, so they... we have uh, we have a couple of auditoriums. Probably wouldn't be in there. We have um, something called a reading room mm -hmm. where we'll do press conferences and things like that. But they have a couple of really big TVs in there, and mm -hmm. you can fit almost 200 people in there if you want to. Would they allow constituents to come too, I wonder? It's a public building, so yeah. um, anybody could probably walk in. But you would invite... we. From our office, we would invite every rep and senator, mm -hmm. so you know, two hundred legislators yeah. to come and watch. And, and we have see a new representative from our, our area. We have a new rep, yeah, so I would do. make sure that I talk to him beforehand and that he's there. I mean, he's this area now, so he's the new uh, kid on the block. So he sure. should be there. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I, I hope everybody really enjoys that interview, and uh, we most likely are not going to do. You never know. But I don't think we're planning on doing another interview until probably September because we said in the last one, Leanna was having her baby. And she did. And she did a lot earlier You're than... officially a grandma. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, they ended up taking the baby early because she had blood pressure issues. So they took the baby. And, yeah, that was quite interesting. Yeah. Now we have little Izzy D. Yeah, Izzy D. Isabella Dean. And, uh, yeah, so she's a little itty-bitty, tiny little thing. Which who, right now she's being a terrorist for her. <laughs> she's, and you're actually on your way there now. Uh, yeah, this. I'm going there now. So a lot of the summer is going to be to help her so she can get some sleep. The baby's was perfect for a little while there, and now you have a little bit of a hard time. So there's a lot of adjustments from the. She's doing great. I have to say, Leanna from the C-section is recovering a lot better than we thought. You know, she's breastfeeding. She's just adjusting to that, and it's you know. 
a little yeah. hard. She needs help. Sure. Yeah, so we're 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 gonna give her the help, and then my sister's coming for three weeks, so we need to enjoy the summer. We're gonna enjoy the baby. We're gonna enjoy when my sister's here. And so um, the plan for right now would be to shut it down for the next two months, and then we'll be back in the fall. Yeah, unless something. Be, I mean, we have so many lined up, and right. we just you know what? After going through something like benzo withdrawal. It's time to put life first over this. So uh, even interviews with Coheal, everything, it's going to be down to a, a minimum. You know, like I, we've always said, you know, if something important comes up and we really want to do a show, it really just takes me and you with a laptop in a, yeah. in a closet with a bunch of old suits from the 70s yeah. to, <laughs> <laughs> to get a show done. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, as always, we appreciate all the people that listen. We appreciate the comments. Y'all always like and subscribe to the podcast, to YouTube, since we're on both. Um, the more comments always help, so com- more people are listening yep. and enjoying. Yep, and you know, the more we you you like on YouTube again, we all know I'm so bad technologically. You know, it brings us up more. Mm-hmm. I think once we get to a thousand, it'll start you know really push out there more. So I don't know. Uh, young James is the one who always tries to explain that to me. He's our YouTube expert. Yeah, he's yeah he's the he's the expert. Not that we really spend a lot of time. So again, we really appreciate it. Uh, all the comments, all the emails, and we hope you all, uh, even for those that are struggling, you know, there is there is hope at the other side of this, and I never thought I would get there, and you will, so I hope you all have a good summer, and thank you for listening. <laughs>